Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Would you please open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 7? We've been going through the book of Romans, and we've arrived at this text, which uh, the second half of chapter 7 is uh, much argued over. It's been the center of uh, much controversy, and um, I'm going to begin by reading our text, and then we'll get into the controversy, trying to protect this text to be the comfort to us that the Holy Spirit intended. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. Romans 7, verses, I'm going to start with 14 and go through verse 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart that is present here this morning be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we have just read the second half of Romans chapter 7. And we're going to be looking particularly at uh, verses 21 to 25, but actually we're going to go back and look at beginning with verse 14 also. But even before we go to verse 14, I want us to look at the first half of the chapter so that we will see the division that there is in the middle of this chapter between the first and second half, and specifically the division that is caused by turning from the past to the present, the division that is caused by turning from life outside of Christ to life in Christ. Now, you understand that the whole debate is whether or not the second half of the chapter refers to life in Christ or out of Christ. So let's get into it. First of all, at verse 5, here's what the first half of the chapter says. He says in verse 5, for while we were in the flesh. Notice immediately it's past tense. We were, past tense, in the flesh. 
And he says the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So this is the condition of the unbeliever. Nobody argues this. So the unbeliever is a man, a woman, who is in the flesh, who's controlled by their sinful passions. Those sinful passions are aroused by the law. You know, they're, they're, uh, they're stirred up. They're, they're irascible. They're, 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 they come out of his, 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 the pores of his flesh. This is what was at work in the members, of, and it bore the fruit of death. This is the condition of the unbeliever. Okay? And he speaks past tense. You go on in verse 7, it says, I would not have come, past tense, to no sin except through the law. So the law causes sin to ooze out of him even more and makes the sin worse. So you think about the pride that you see on the part of unbelievers, where their sins are obvious. There's no denying their sin. It's obvious. They know their sin, and yet they're proud. You know, you, you felt this, where somebody is so obviously a pain in the nose or wherever. And, and it's the thing that's most obvious to everyone that's around them, you know, right? And they're proud! And an awful lot of times, the reason for the pride is that they don't want to admit their sin. And so they just, you know, it's like the guy, the running back that uses, you know, the straight arm. You know, the pride is their straight arm. You know, it's like, I ain't going to admit nothing, you know? Verse 11, for sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. And so you have this vicious cycle. It goes around and around. It's like pride, it's death, it's sin, it's the law, and it just is a vortex. And it's bondage, right? Then verse 13, by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Sin taking an opportunity through the commandment, what? Past tense, deceived me and through it killed me. You know, you remember the movie a long while ago. I never saw it, but it was a movie, you know, against capital punishment. And it was, uh, what was it? It was called Walking Dead Men. Yeah, Dead Men Walking. This is the condition of those who are out of Christ. They're dead men walking. We were in the flesh, past tense. Sin, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work. Sin deceived me, sin killed me. The Apostle Paul's talking about himself, verses 15 to the end of the chapter. He uses the first person singular pronoun 39 times. It's clear he's talking about himself, and it's clear in the first half of the chapter he's talking about himself before he came to faith in Jesus Christ. Remember how Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And so this is his life. Now, the second half of the chapter, the Apostle Paul switches to the present tense. 
Writers don't do that without having an intention. And he says, verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. The law is spiritual, I am. Not I was, I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. So here we have the transition to the present tense. Now, John Calvin, a great student of Scripture, my favorite, all right, just personal preference, he says that verse 14 is transitional. He says verse 14 is partly speaking about unregenerate man and partly speaking about regenerate man. And if you look at it, you can sort of see how this works. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh. And then you hit this statement, sold into bondage to sin. Now, remember last week I quoted uh, the Bible scholar Doug Moo up at Wheaton. And you remember Doug Moo says that the rest of the chapter has to do with unregenerate man. He says all of chapter 7 has to do with non-Christians, all right? And the principal reason, when you read all his verbiage, the principal reason is because of the last phrase of, of verse 14. Because it says there, sold into bondage. And he just says point blank, you can't have a Christian who's sold into bondage to sin. After all, if chapter 6 and the first part of chapter 7 say, we as Christians have died to sin and have died to the law, you can't make a statement about yourself as a Christian that you're sold into bondage to sin. But I want you to look at that, at that verse. Look at it carefully, okay? For we know that the law is spiritual. Well, what does he mean by the law being spiritual? What he means is that the Old Testament, the law, that's how they refer to it all together, the Old Testament is of God. That's what he means. It's spiritual. It's of the Holy Spirit. It is of God. We know the law is written by God. In other words, the law has divine origin, right? Well, there's no reason why a Christian can't say that, right? You all with me? You know, every one of us would say, the law, the word of God, scriptures are spiritual, right? Okay, so we don't have a problem there. Um, then he says, but I am of flesh. Now, can we, can we say as Christians, I am of flesh? <sighs> and of course, this is the whole ball game. You know, our, <laughs> Is a Christian fleshly? All right. Let me read uh, another place in the New Testament um, that is very helpful on this question. Can we refer to the Christian as being fleshly? Um, The Apostle Paul says uh, in Romans 6, so a chapter and a half earlier, He says, I am speaking in human terms because, now he's writing Christians, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your what? Your flesh. Okay? Romans chapter 7, verse 5, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Well, here it seems that it's referring to an unregenerate man, right? Then he says, verse, chapter 7, verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Eh. And then, 
we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, and he says this. He says, I, brothers, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, Christian, non-Christian. I, when I wrote you in, in, in the church in Corinth, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of flesh. And then he says this, as to infants in Christ. Clearly, he's talking about Christians. And they're in the flesh. All right? And so when we go back to verses 18 to 20 of our text, he says in verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. So Christian, non-Christian. Well, you're certainly not going to make your decision on the basis of this phrase flesh because it is used of Christians in a way that is absolutely inarguable. Christians are referred to those who are in the flesh, infants in Christ. And the Apostle Paul uses this word flesh over and over and over again with Christians. And often he uses it in a way that, that is exhorting and admonishing us to leave the flesh behind. I hope many of you as men, when you're facing sexual temptation, you remember what the Apostle Paul says to Christians where he says what? I hope somebody, somebody can come out with it. He says what? Come on, you should, you should know this when you're looking at your computer. Uh, yes, yes. Make no provision for your flesh. And we all know what it is to make provision for our flesh, right? Come on. And so we are of flesh, and we are of spirit. And if that makes you uncomfortable, Romans chapter 7 is where you need to focus. And so the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 7, speaks of knowing the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, and then sold into bondage to sin. And, and listen, you remember how I said that there's no reason why that verse can't apply to a Christian, why a Christian can't say it. Remember, the Bible scholar that I read to you last week says, no, this refers to unbelievers. And he focuses on this final statement of verse 14, sold into bondage to sin. But to me, it's clear the first half of it is easily to Christians, right? There's absolutely no reason why that wouldn't be written to Christians. So what's the problem with sold into bondage to sin? To me, the solution is so simple. Every human being that's ever been conceived in his mother is sold into bondage to sin. And the Apostle Paul's making an allusion back to original sin, to the fall, to Adam's sin, and the fact that we are all corrupted through Adam's sin. We're sold into bondage to sin. Who's going to argue with this? That we are sold into bondage to sin. All right, now here's the answer. Everybody except a Christian. Remember how I asked you to read this text over and over again or to listen to it this week? Do you remember I said to you, I want you as you listen to it or read it, I want you to ask your question, what unbeliever would say these things? And then I said, ask yourself also what believer would say these things? 
And so you look at this, and you think about an unbeliever saying, I know the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Oh, my goodness. You know, I'd die to go to heaven if I had unbelievers saying this to me. Why? Well, because they'd all be believers. (laughs) You know? I mean, come on. You do have unbelievers who come under conviction of sin, but what is this an indication of? This is an indication of the Spirit of God awakening them. It's an indication of God's power at work in them. It's not an indication that they're without God and without hope in this world. And then we continue for what I am doing. Now, notice the present tense in the first person singular, I. For what I am doing, I do not understand. And this is, this is, this is the perpetual confession I hear from unbelievers. <laughs> what I'm doing, I don't understand. You know, you go down to Seminary Park, sit down on a, on a bench, and talk to somebody there, and they say, you know, what I am doing, I don't understand. No. You know, I, I, I try to keep track somewhat with the opioid crisis and the number of people dying. You know, I've told you that poor Eric has, has awakened me to many things by giving me reading material. And, and listen, there is an epidemic of uneducated white men who are dying. A lot of them are going on disability, and then in a while they die of opioids or they die of alcohol or they just kill themselves. And so I went on Reddit. I I never use Reddit, but I wanted something local. I, I had a question, and I was directed to Reddit and saw the Bloomington Forum. And just incidentally, in the Bloomington Forum, there was a little post about, well, I just watched two bodies taken out of Seminary Park. And then a whole bunch of homeless people posted. It was fascinating, you know? And why, why are people dying of narcotics? Is it because as they take their drug of choice, they say to themselves, what I am doing I do not understand? You might think so, but that's not what they're saying. What they're saying is, I love the feeling that I get from my drug of choice more than I love life. And they know that's what they're saying. And so when I read about the death of people because of opioids, I always think of those deaths as suicides. You know, they're referred to as overdose. But they're a suicide. They're a self-murder. That's what they are. The the people that are on opioids have known for a long time it's a dead-end road they're on. And they choose the dead-end road because they would rather die eventually and have the high until they die than they would to live. And so, no... They are not saying, what I am doing, I do not understand. 
they actually stop patronizing them. The solution is not education. Well, if we just teach them to make good choices, you know, no. They understand precisely what they're doing, and they are doing what they want. Give them the dignity of being moral agents, for heaven's sakes. And they don't want to live. You know, you read the articles about this crisis of death among uneducated poor white men in this country, and (laughs) it's so obvious. All the scholars say there's absolutely nothing they can figure out why it's happening. And then they tell you over in Europe, actually uneducated white men are not killing themselves. And so they can show a difference in mortality rates and everything. Education levels, you know, the correlation. What's going on in America today is that poor white men who are uneducated do not want to live. Okay? But here's the thing. Reformed churches don't want them. Oh, and they don't want to live. Oh. Who do Reformed churches want? Reformed churches want homosexuals. Badly. Why? That's an interesting question. Do you know why? There's an unbelievable wealth and power to being homosexual in America today on every single level. What power and wealth is there to being a poor, uneducated white man? The high point in his week is buying lottery tickets at the gas station. Come on, people. Be truthful. And so the church doesn't want poor white people. Listen, people that are on drugs and alcohol need to have it explained to them that God made them in his own image. Adam did not say it in the second service because he kind of caught it for going too long in the first service. But my favorite part of the first service was he said that when they went over, I don't think you said it in the second service. He said that uh, Samuel, did you quote Samuel in the second service? So stand up and tell the people what you were going to say if I hadn't told you you had to shorten it. Actually, I didn't tell him that. Well, yeah, I did. I hope it works. Somebody asked Samuel what surprised him most about Africa, and he said, I had always assumed that poor people were unhappy. And he found out exactly the opposite, that in Kenya they were very poor, very happy, very warm, very hospitable, very content. And, it, it, you know, it's a shock to all of us in America when we realize that. Thank you. Wise observation, young man. That's actually the same thing that shocked me in Africa. You know. And so when we look at the Apostle Paul 
speaking, and he says, what I am doing I do not understand. And then he says, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Is this an unbeliever speaking, or is this a believer speaking? Do you find unbelievers going around talking about, they don't understand why they're doing what they're doing, and they're doing the very thing they hate. All right, now keep going. But, if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Do you hear unbelievers speaking this way? And so the way Doug Moo explains this being unbeliever is he begins to create this category of almost Christian Jew who lives in, in, in submission to the law of God and is almost good enough and yet has a certain lack of comfort about who he is, right? And then Moo says, this is that scholar, Moo says, and he didn't really even know it back then. He's now speaking in the present about what was true in the past, even though he didn't know that was true in the past. It's just like, dude, what is going on within you? Do you have tuberculosis or something? You know, it's like you got a dyspeptic, you know, you need some Alka-Seltzer. In other words, what I'm, my point in saying this is to say that when you come up with such convoluted explanations of a simple text, what has to be true of you is that there's some need that you're trying to take care of, and it, it needs you to manufacture a Rube Goldberg device. You all with me? You know, it's one of those things where, you know, it's the funniest thing to do on the internet. It's clean, and it's endlessly entertaining. <laughs> you know, you know, bing, 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 boing, bing. You know what I'm talking about? These things, what are, what are they called on the internet? They're not called Rube. Is that what they're called? All right, Rube Goldberg. All right, go home and look at it. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, non-Christian or Christian. I'm not doing it. It's sin dwelling in me. Oh, come on. No non-Christian talks like that. Then he says... For I know that nothing... Oh, now that sounds like an unbeliever. You know how unbelievers come up to you and say, nothing good dwells in me. I mean, honestly, you can't even get Christians to say that. (laughs) That is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Sound like an unbeliever? So I, I've, I've, gotten, I've gotten quite the delight the last few weeks at seeing the recycling industry blowing to smithereens. Okay? Last Sunday night, 60 Minutes has this piece on what in the world is going on with recycling. It's like the whole moral universe of unbelievers has been blown to smithereens in the Western world. And so they have this piece where they show that instead of it all being shipped to China now, it's all getting shipped to Vietnam and, you know. And so then they have the, uh, the broker on camera and they say to the broker, so 
do we have any reason to believe that the plastics that are now going to Vietnam are, are being recycled? You know? And he just starts bloviating. You know, it's, you know? And thank goodness the one thing he doesn't do is say, no. Because then what? Well, then every, every unbeliever in the Western world would feel slightly less good about himself. I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? We have all these little laws that we manufacture to keep us from having to obey God's laws. And we all keep careful track of how moral we are by what color the containers are out at the curb. Okay? And there are a host of things like that that we use to prove to ourselves that we do the things that we want and that we obey the things that are good and that we are good. That's how unbelievers think of themselves. Years ago, I loved an article reporting on studies they'd done of the correlation between self-reporting on recycling and actual recycling. And it was fascinating. The higher income, higher educated people always reported themselves as being so good about recycling, okay? But then they actually had the audacity to go and open up their trash. And they weighed it and they sorted it. And guess what? Educated people did not recycle. In fact, educated people who are unbelievers do not say, no longer am I the one doing it, it's sin which dwells in me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. That's not what they say. Keep going, please. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. This is not the confession of an unbeliever. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Okay. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur. I knew for a period of many years that Doug Moo, who has supposedly written the best modern commentary in the evangelical world of Romans said that this text did not apply to Christians, but rather to unbelievers. And so every, you know, I've, now I've listened to Romans hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Every time I mow, earplugs in, Romans. And so I've had occasion to listen over and over again. Have you ever noticed that you can read one text in Scripture over and over and over and over again, and one day you will read it instead of just reading it? 
And one day, it pops out at you and hammers you. And I remember reading, listening to it, and I came to verse 22. And to me, verse 22, if there was any question anywhere else, verse 22 decides the issue so clearly. Because even if you could imagine unbelievers saying everything else in the text, you'd never hear an unbeliever saying what? For I joyfully concur. I remember the word joyfully just hit me like a sledgehammer. I thought, yeah, I do joyfully concur with God's law. And then immediately I thought, oh, 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 no, you can't say that. Look at your sin. And then I said, no, I, I do joyfully concur in it. And I said to myself, liar, liar, pants on fire, noses as long as a telephone wire. Seriously. And I said, no. I joyfully concur with the law of God. No, you don't. And so the question comes down to this. Who are you going to trust? And the answer is not Ghostbusters. Are you going to trust God? You're going to trust your own lying heart. And your lying heart is set on fire by the prince of darkness, who from the beginning has been a liar. And he is the accuser of the brethren. Listen, people, my conviction about this text is do not ever let superficial Christians, no matter what terminal degree they have, rob you of the comfort of Romans 7. Romans 7 is, as you listened to it this last week and read it, it is your experience. And that does not mean that you are a second-class Christian. And listen, all through church history, there have been various strains of heresies which have schemed to take away the second half of Romans 7 for the people of God and to discourage them that they have not yet risen above the second half of Romans chapter 7. And do not believe them. It's very interesting that John Calvin, at the very end of his commentary on chapter 7, this is his final statement about this section. He says this. I'm sorry, wrong page. He says this. He says... The passage here is a notable one for condemning that most pernicious dogma of the purists, the Cathari, which some turbulent spirits are attempting to revive at our present time. Five centuries ago, he says this whole text is a condemnation of the Cathari. Any of you taken history? You know the Cathari? So all through the Middle Ages, you had these various hyper-spiritual movements, and what was common to many of them is that they denied the sinfulness of their lives. They said, no, 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 Christians, Christians do not continue to sin. You remember last week, that's what Doug Moose said. Well, you know, 
there are some Christians who have arrived at the level where they don't struggle with sin anymore. Remember him saying that? And Calvin says, this text is given to shut that down. And then he describes these perfectionists, right, as turbulent spirits. What is a turbulent spirit? Well, whatever the turbulent spirit is, it's what produces a hurricane and a tornado. These are people who will not submit themselves to the church of Jesus Christ and are perpetually dividing from it, saying that they have a higher truth. And they talk to other people and get other people aspiring after things that God has never called them to aspire after. And you say, well, what is that? And I say, perfection. Oh, you say, no, no, no. Jesus says you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, there's aspiration and there's aspiration. You know? So it's like there's patience and there's patience. You know? I was going to ask Adam if, 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 if they had an impatience clinic, where was the patience clinic? <laughs> I, I sat there trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And I didn't re- realize until just now that one is with a T and the other is with a C. This is true. <laughs> you know? Speaking of an impatience clinic... This last week, our dear brother, Charlie, had a clinic in impatience. And I got to visit him a couple of times. And I'm sure that if he were here, he would give me permission to tell this story. Seriously. Charlie does not like to have the mask over his mouth. And so he was impatient about it. In fact, one of the reasons some of us were very happy this last week at Charlie's impatience was that it was an indication he was getting better. And for a while, he was right at death's door. And so for him to be uh, irascible, is that fair, Jeff? I think it's fair. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Is that okay, Amanda, you know? And so I went in to visit him yesterday, and he's got this mask on, but he wants to drink Mountain Dew, you know? (laughs) And so I had heard about the fight he'd had over his mask, you know? But I could see he was wanting to drink Mountain Dew. And so I took the mask off his, 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 his mouth and put it up on his bald head. And as soon as I did that, the nurse walks in. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, I don't know if it's the nurse, you know. And, and so Charlie gets to drink his Mountain Dew. And I explained to her that I just had taken it off. But then a little later, a nurse comes in and the two of them are talking about how often it's been off when they've come in, you know. <laughs> and he needs oxygen or he'll die right now, Okay. Everything about the hospital was made to be humiliating. I remember a cartoon years ago in a magazine where you had this obvious successful businessman, ramrod straight, 
my age, you know, blah, 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 blah. you know, you could just feel it in his body, right? But the, the cartoonist had written, had drawn the cartoon from his back. And so you were looking down that examining table with him sitting at the end and the doctor standing on the other side of him looking at him. And of course, the gown, you all with me? You know, it didn't look so good from the back. And the doctor says to the man on the table, no, the entire point of this is humiliation. (laughs) And I just thought, that's perfect. You know, who else can humiliate a successful businessman other than a doctor? Okay, now come back to Charlie with me. What he has to wear, how he has to handle his bodily functions, what he has over his mouth, the fact that he can't get out of bed, everything in that situation is a pressure cooker. For what? For him to show how godly he is? Charlie does not do things like this. Charlie always operates from strength. I said to him yesterday, I said, you know, Charlie, this is one job that you can't yell at anybody else for doing badly. Because you've never done it. And you're just going to have to figure out how to do it well yourself. Right? And you know what he said? He had the mask on, so it was muffled. But he said... You know, bunch of complaints. And then another complaint, and this was the complaint. You know, if this is how God has to sanctify me. And that's what he said. And it was just in the middle of a bunch of complaints. <laughs> Listen, this is the normal Christian life. You think that your divorce was a big mistake, but that you done got over that. No, you have so many mistakes left in front of you. You are going to spend your life rising certainly no higher than the Apostle Paul, who says, what I want to do, I don't do. I don't understand myself. Satan's going to say, well, he's not really a Christian. Doug Moo's going to say, well, this was his pre-sort of sanctified but not sanctified Jewish life. And I want to end by asking a question. What would motivate us as Christians to say that this is describing someone who's not a Christian? What would motivate us to say that this entire section has been about unbelievers? What would motivate a Christian to try to separate himself from this description of the Christian life? And to say it's not the life of a Christian. You know, if you watch detective mysteries, you always have to come up with motive. What would be the motive that would cause you as a Christian to want to distance yourself from this description? And I'm going to tell you what is very clear to me. It's a Christian who long ago became rigid in his pride and is a moralist and will not look at his heart. That's what would, that's what would motivate you to do this.
you have gotten past the point of acknowledging the fearful truth, thank you, Andrew, the fearful truth of what you are capable of doing. You can walk away from your wife and children. Trust me, many men have done it. You can off yourself with opioids. You, and I won't go into... (laughs) But honestly, if the Christian life is a life of growing devotion to Jesus Christ... And if the Apostle Paul pleaded for the thorn in his flesh to be taken away from him, and God said, "Uh uh-uh, and God said to him, I'm perfected in weakness. And so Paul bragged about not having this thorn in the flesh taken away and having to depend on God. I'm so grieved over the Me Too movement as it comes into the church. And the reason I'm grieved is that the moral of me too is that there are some people out there who are just bad. You know? And it's just ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous. How they decide who they're going to out and who they're not going to out is completely random. And the fact is, almost any pastor... (laughs) You know, you put him up in front of a congregation and have the congregation examine him, and he's not worthy of being their preacher. And so we have these ways that we come up with slice and dice things. And now they're in the church, and now we're learning that some men just should never be pastors. Why? Well, because they're not susceptible to beseechingness or whatever that thing they got C.J. Mahaney on. You know, he's not un, un, unbeseeching, un, what was it? Unappealability? Unentreatable, yes. That was the huge sin of C.J. Mahaney and why all his, 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 some of his staff hammered. He was unentreatable. Any man here married to a woman like this? <laughs> Come on. Nobody puts their hand up. All right, fine. I'm certainly not going to put my hand up. Listen, what we all have to realize is that God, are you ready for this? Listen carefully. God is glorified by man's dependence the title of one of Jonathan Edwards' sermons, God glorified by man's dependence. God gets the glory when we confess the second half of Romans 7 is about Christians. Because there's not a moment in our life that we're not desperately clinging to him, especially as we die. And there is no sweet spot of the death of a Christian that is not just like Charlie. And so, those of you who are young, and especially as you come of age and 
begin to be sexual, you're going to see inside of yourself desires and temptations that are going to horrify you. And this is why you need Jesus. And we're not embarrassed by your temptations and sins. We have faith for you, young people. This second half of Romans 7 is maybe one of the most hopeful parts of all of Scripture. Yeah, it's like honey that we taste it and it's sweet. And if you want to see a long book that develops the theme, read John Owen on indwelling sin. Because the entire book is a meditation on the law, the principle of sin and death that remains in the Christian. And how to fight it. But there's no way to fight it without humility. And so I say... I mean, honestly, I just, oh, I just hate the thought of Christians believing that this does not apply to Christians. You know, can you imagine reading this text and thinking, oh, no, that's me? Because you know every Christian reading is going to say, that's me. And then having a pastor, a Bible scholar tell you, oh, break on through to the other side. But listen, people, that's the doors. That ain't the Holy Spirit. There ain't no breaking through onto the other side except through the door of death. And then we're glorified and not until. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the humility of the Christian life that we can confess these horrors that only faith can can keep under our foot. We pray, Father, that you will give us faith, that we will stand on the promises. We pray that you will help us to fight this indwelling principle of sin that is in us. We pray that you will make us tender towards our children as they learn to fight. We pray that this church herself will be faithful in fighting the principle of sin that remains in her. And Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul, that he was not a super apostle, but he was just a grunt who kept a good record of the normal Christian life. We love you. We thank you for your tender care of us through the Apostle Paul. In Jesus' name, amen.